the sixth psalm, and we'll begin reading here at the first verse. Hear the word of our God. To the chief musician on Neginot, upon Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also vexed, sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, ye all, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Thus far the reading of God's word. And may he bless it to our hearing this evening. Before we come to the text, I would like to set before you just three basic thoughts. The first is that as we come to this passage of scripture, we have here something that at first brush seems rather non-controversial. But as we look at the passage itself, as we carefully seek to understand the words themselves and then carefully apply them, I would say that this is perhaps one of the most controversial texts I could hold out to you this evening. This is a difficult passage of scripture. But the second thing that I'd say to you is for all of its difficulty and for all of the ways that perhaps its application may separate a believer from the experience of many professing Christians today, there is so much consolation in this text. Again, it may not appear to be the way that way in the first reading, but, but really, friend, as we look at this passage of Scripture, there is so much comfort that's carried out to the people of God, and comfort that pertains to this life. Comfort that really addresses the believer now. But thirdly, I would say to you this evening, you could hear this sermon and read this text and assume that this is really a continuation of, of a thought that began even last midweek. You could hear this as a call to mourning and a call to anguish. Um, and certainly mourning is involved in the sixth psalm, but, but that's really not the call of the text. The call this evening is one to clear thinking, one to sensibility, one to assess things around them as they ought to. That really is how the sixth psalm comes to us. And so that's how I want us to see it this, even this evening. As we look at this text, we'll note that, of course, even in the superscription, we're told that this is going to be a somber psalm. It says here, To the chief musician upon Neginot upon Sheminit, a psalm of David. 
The word shemanit there is a word that describes shrill or a low-toned sound. And most scholars, both ancient and more recent, are verily persuaded that, that this is a word that describes the kind of tune that the psalmist is urging the singers of it to sing it through it. The idea is, is that those who would be its presenters are to pick a psalm that is, as it were, low-toned. And, friend, we could look over this and simply see this as a minor detail, but really the psalmist already from the superscription is informing us how the following lines are to be read, specifically even how they're supposed to be sung. The psalmist is saying, your external tone is to match the internal, the internal and somber frame that you find in these lines. The internal and the external are to match. And friend, this is a very important point that we can't, we can't stress enough. The psalmist is saying the internal and the external of the believer, he who would praise God, need to be in harmony. The two must go together. And so the psalmist tells us at the very beginning, This is a psalm that will require the believer to be somber, to be low before the Lord. As we look at this psalm, we'll note, of course, that there is good reason for that superscription. If you look at just the first four verses, what you find here is the man gives before us his afflictions and corresponding petitions. And in the very first verse, we're told the source of his affliction is the Lord's displeasure. God's anger, he says here, is the cause of his misery. God's displeasure. Not only the sense of it, this is so crucial. Not only the sense of divine displeasure is what the psalmist has in view. He is actually under the chastening hand of God. That's the assertion of the first verse. And all that follows in that first section flow from this one cause. In other words, the psalmist is at the downstream, as it were, tracing his way back to the fountain. And verse 1 gives us that fountain, the displeasure of God. But then as you come to verses 5 to 7, you have here the psalmist's aim and his affection. As he's under the rod of God, as he's under this chastening, you'll notice here that he has one principal desire. And certainly we'll spend more time on this in just a few moments. But but you'll notice here that this desire, his, his heart is fixed on this idea of praise. It's a striking thing in the fifth verse. His petitions are grounded in this way. Grounded upon this idea that he would live to praise. He craves longevity from God's hand. That he might worship the Lord. And then as you come to this last section, verses 8 to 10. In these three verses you have the man's assurance. Concluding assertions that the psalmist holds to while under the rod. Now, beloved, as we look at this psalm and holding all of these things together, it's important for us to remember that everything we find here is certainly personal. Everything we find here certainly reflects the inner disposition of the psalmist. But we would be wrong to see this psalm equal to some kind of religious soliloquy that we might write today. Yes, in both cases, you have Christians narrating their experience as they are children of God, 
And perhaps even as together they're under the rod. But friends, Psalm 6, and really the whole Psalter, should be received not just as some kind of religious introspection put on page. The psalmist presents to us an example, a spirit-inspired example of the believer. This is instruction and this is example that you and I are to emulate. This is not merely reflection on one man's experience. This is to be normative of all of those who are called by the name of God. And holding then all of these truths together, there's one basic theme that emerges. It's a striking theme in one way, and one that certainly will require more explanation, but holding together that middle section with the, one, the sections that go before and after, we learn here that the godly crave deliverance from chastening for God's glory. The godly crave deliverance from chastening for God's glory. And I want us to consider that. Just according to the sections that are given to us in the psalm itself. I want us to consider first of all the man's affliction. In the first four verses. Then the aim that the man has. Verses 5 to 7. And then his assurance. Verses 8 to 10. And so take first of all that first section. Verses 1 to 4. And as I've already said to you. The psalmist begins very pointedly, with the cause of all that has come and all that has come upon him. The psalmist begins with this idea that he is under the chastening hand of God. Now, oh friend, it's important for me to say this to you now. Whenever he says, rebuke me not in thine anger, chasten me not in thy displeasure or hot displeasure, the idea of rebuke and chasten there are inextricably tied to the idea of correction. I mean, in the scriptures, in Psalm 50:23, the words appear there to describe conviction after some kind of trial. A judge has pronounced sentence. Or take, for instance, the way that it comes to us through the book of Job. These words, rebuke or chasten, describe one who has been corrected from a fault. Or go even further. Proverbs 19 describes the idea of one being corrected... And with pain. And of course, perhaps most obviously, this is the way the scriptures describe a father's relationship with his son as the father corrects him, disciplines him. These are the words the psalmist begins with. Words of correction. Words that demonstrate the psalmist himself is a sinner and he is being corrected, disciplined by God. Friend, I held out to you at the very beginning that there is a lot that is controversial here. And this perhaps is the first one. This is the first principle that we have perhaps the greatest struggles with in our generation. The psalmist sees that his God is a God who disciplines his own. Chastens his own. But not only does he tell us that he is under the rod, he also tells us the extent Note verses 2 and following. You have the man describe himself as one whose bones are vexed. The idea there is that his inmost being, physically speaking, has been disturbed. He is a man who really is under pain. 
And perhaps this is an allusion even to physical sickness. The man is wrapped, as it were, in his very body. But as you come to the third verse, he goes on to say that his soul also is vexed. Body and soul, in other words, says the psalmist, are under the rod. Both body and soul feel this chastening displeasure. And friend, what we can't miss from this text is the psalmist carries out to us very really, and and really without any equivocation, the idea that sin does indeed invite chastening on body and soul. Uh, The Christian, he's not bound to eternal wrath anymore. But make no mistake, in the scriptures and in the psalm before us this evening, the Christian does know God's paternal, fatherly displeasure. I will, says the psalmist, as God conveys his covenant to his people, I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him. This is the psalmist's experience. He remains God's. He remains, he remains one who is related to God intimately and by covenant. But he nevertheless knows the Lord's rod and his chastening. And the Christian knows this, friend. I want you to notice he knows the rea- he knows it in terms of its own reality. I mean, look at how the psalmist reasons as you hold together verse one with what follows. You have the man really setting before us the idea that he is a man who is afflicted and has traced his afflictions back to this one cause. Note the language, verse 2. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? The idea is that the psalmist not only speaks abstractly by the chastening hand of God, but he knows it intimately. He knows it by experience. You see, friend, as the psalmist reflects on this moment, it's right for us to ask, how does he get from these external difficulties all the way to the rod? In other words, how can he say that he is really under God's chastening? What has told that to him? What's striking is, friend, you don't find Nathan the prophet here. What's striking is you don't find some kind of special revelation that says you are now under God's hand. And yet the psalmist boldly and confidently says, the afflictions he is now facing are the, God, are the Lord's rod. How does he reason this way? Well, friend, first of all, I want you to notice here that the man sees himself afflicted. He tells us that much. And even as he comes to the third verse, he intimates that this affliction is in the soul. Perhaps he even has particularly those aggravations of conscience in view. And holding those two things together, he discerns the Lord's displeasure. We'll come back to that in a moment. But friend, as he holds these things together, note how mindful he is of this. He doesn't merely say that he's an afflicted man. He doesn't merely say that he's a spiritually afflicted man. He says he's a man who's chastened by the Lord. 
That's really, he's really doing what the writer of the Hebrews counsels us to do. When the writer of the Hebrews tells us to not despise the chastening of the Lord. The word despise there does not mean to contend or, or it doesn't mean to refuse obstinately. The word despise there, even in the Old English and also in the Greek text behind it, means to disregard or make light of. That's the idea. And the psalmist certainly doesn't make light of the Lord's dealings with him. He really does believe that God is dealing with him. He really does believe that the Lord's chastening hand is upon him. And so he deals with the Lord accordingly. But that brings us back to that question. How does he know that this is chastening? How does he know that this affliction, body and soul, are stemmed from the displeasure of the Lord? This brings us to another controversial aspect of our psalm. Everything in this first section seems to indicate the man really is only holding these two things together. His affliction in body and soul as evidence of the Lord's displeasure. Calvin puts it this way. All the distresses which God inflicts upon us ought to be attributed to our sins. I said to you this evening there are controversial things here. This perhaps is one of the greatest. Says Calvin, all the distresses which God inflicts upon us ought to be attributed to our sins. That's precisely how the psalmist himself deals with his own affliction. He is afflicted, and he says he is thus chastened. Now, at first brush, that seems quite contradictory almost to, for instance, the experience of Jerusalem. Or perhaps to the man born blind in John's Gospel. So how do we make sense of this? How can the man reason simply from his affliction back to the rod of the Lord? Well, friend, the answer is very simple. It's not the case that every believer is afflicted specifically according to specific sins. One can't draw a one-to-one correlation between their specific sins and their individual affliction. But, as we read from 1 Peter, the point of the Apostle is very basic. If you are in the fire, like metal, you are there that your dross might be burned away. It may not be for specific notorious sins, but it certainly is to deal with indwelling sin that you and I are afflicted. It is certainly the case That we are only afflicted because still the Lord would use those things to further purify his people. The Lord has infinite purposes behind all of his dealings in providence. But the psalmist discerns that his afflictions, at least in part, are derived from the Lord. Dealing with him. Dealings very specifically with his sins through affliction. And so, friend, as you look throughout the scriptures, you'll find this. You'll find that as soon as the man is afflicted, he goes and he humbles himself before the Lord. And why? Without a prophet proclaiming special revelation, as it was, of course, the case with David and Nathan. Yet, nevertheless, as soon as affliction comes, they humble themselves before God. Just as our psalmist does here, attributing it to God's dealings with them. You see, friend, again, so there's no misunderstanding. 
the reason why the believer is still in the furnace in his life is to deal with sin. There are still impurities in you and in me that must be burned. And so the furnace of affliction is still known to us. But I want you to notice too, not only is it the case that the man here senses the Lord's indignation, but too he also knows something of the severity. The psalmist here points to the extent of his difficulties. Body and soul are touched. And friend, the Christian knows that the paternal displeasure of the Lord can be thus severe. Yes, he remains a child. Yes, he remains united to Christ. But the chastening of God, even for his own, is not life. First Corinthians 11. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Even in the church at Corinth, you'll find evidence of this kind of severity. The writer of the Hebrews, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. The idea, friend, here is that these are tokens of the Lord's displeasure, and their severity is known by the believer. The believer knows that the Lord still despises sin, even if that sin is found in his people. But for the Christian, why is this such a great grief? Why is the Christian here lamenting these things in the way that he is? The answer, beloved, is just from this. This chastening that he experiences, these afflictions that remind him that he is still to be in the furnace because dross remains. Well, friend, the grief that he knows is because these tokens hold out to him fatherly displeasure. It's the idea that you have in Psalm 51. What was David's greatest grief? Against thee and thee only have I sinned. These tokens of the Lord's displeasure that the psalmist has are really not just pains in themselves that grieve the man. They hold out to him the reality that he has sinned against the Father whom he so loves. Sinned against a God who has been so gracious to him. To whom his heart has been turned. An illustration taken directly from our own experience is that really the discipline and the affliction that God brings upon his people. These things are paternal corrections calculated to lead a careless child to think clearly about the severity of their sin. A good parent studies much to know how to convey to their child what their sins really are and how severe they are in the face of God. And the afflictions that God sends to his people are to do that. They're to remind his people that their sins, however so careless they may think of them otherwise, are really in the sight of God loathsome. And so, friend, what we learn from this is that all afflictions should lead to humbling. Perhaps God is dealing very specifically with specific sins, but, per, but really, most often the believer will find, if I may say this boldly, most often he will find that the Lord is dealing with indwelling sin with which we have become too complacent. And here the Lord is urging his people through the psalmist to humble themselves, to take the rod, to find here that still they are in the furnace because the dross remains. Secondly, we find here in verses 5 to 7, 
a striking thing. We find here the man's aim as he goes before God. He says, for in death there is no remembrance of thee. Now the word there, remembrance, means to make mention. Joshua 23, 7. Or to give thanks, as it is throughout Scripture. The idea is not that the psalmist will forget God cognitively on the other side of the grave. The idea is predominantly that the psalmist recognizes that in death his lips are silenced. No longer in the land of the living will he praise God. In other words, friend, no longer in the land of the living will he leave a testimony to God's goodness and his grace. That's the idea. The psalmist is saying that he longs in this case to be one who is spared. That he may continue in the land of the living to praise the Lord. To confess. To give thanks. To make mention of God. That is the sense of the text. And friend, note how exercised he is in this. I am weary with my groaning. Mine eye is consumed with grief. The idea is that, really, first, he feels the chastening hand of God. He feels it really in his bones and in his soul. Secondly, the thing that burdens him here is that his lips will be closed in this life. His testimony will be cut, ended with this chastening. Friend, the principle that we derive from this is so basic, but it's so, oh friend, it is so foreign to us, isn't it? Here you have a man who is really under the rod. And he recognizes that if he is under the rod, it is God who is purifying him because still indwelling sin is to be found. And the way in which this purification is taking place is something that touches the inmost part of his being. Physically and spiritually. But then friend, I want you to note this. As he reflects on the idea that perhaps he is being hastened to the grave. Perhaps his life is going to be cut off now. Why does he so long to live? What is the argument that he uses with Almighty God that he might live longer? Friend, it's striking, isn't it? His craving here is that he might live longer, that he might praise God here. That's the craving that he has for longevity. That his lips would not now be stopped. That his life would not now be stopped. And so his testimony ended at this stage. To the God whom he loves. To the grace that he's received. And friend, this is the point, isn't it? This is the central part of the psalm in which the godly come before us saying they live to praise. They live to preserve a testimony to divine grace. This is so foreign, isn't it? Friend, it shouldn't be. Those who are in Christ know, of course, that the Lord's loving kindness is better than life. And therefore their lips shall praise. The godly cry, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This man who is wrapped and nearly brought to the grave, his craving is that he might live to worship God. 
And why is that? He esteems the praises of God as more precious than life. Because he knows certainly that the love of God is. He knows certainly that the God of glory is worth more than himself. And don't we see the examples of this kind of sentiment all throughout the scriptures? Moses goes before Pharaoh. And you remember God told, calls Moses to say to Pharaoh, Let my people go so that they may serve me. That is, worship me in my holy mountain. That's the first request the Lord gives through Moses. Take Ezra, a man who was, of course, working, laboring hard to see the re-erection of God's worship in Jerusalem. How many difficulties did he encounter? How many times were threats and even the likelihood of death coming close to God's people and yet they persisted? You see, friend, you even find this in Daniel, don't you? A man who counted praying to God more precious than life. This is the warp and woof of biblical piety. A longing to worship God. A living to worship God. You see, friend, the psalmist craves just this. He says, I will wash my hands in innocency that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. In other words, he will set himself to put sin to death so that he may publish the wondrous works of God. And then right afterward, he says this, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. The idea is he loves this thing more than any other. Any other terrestrial blessing that he knows. He loves that he may worship his God. Or take this, another example from the psalmist. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. The psalmist here sees very solemnly his own sin. And the thing that he craves most of all is that as long as he lives, his testimony to God, his testimony that ought to be an encouragement to God's people would not be marred. How careful is he? How earnest is he to praise and to publish the grace of God that he's received, the glory of the God whom he loves? Friend, what you see here is a man who really and truly from the heart believes that the praise of God is worth more than life. And strikingly, his affliction, as it were, has just peeled the man back. To show us as much. You see friend. The question that comes with at this stage. Is what grieves us most under affliction. Or if I could put it another way. What do we live for? What do we live for? It's the very idea of Isaiah 38. And Isaiah 38 of course. Hezekiah prays. The Lord be gracious to him. And extend his life. But why? Friends, so often we read the scriptures superficially when we come especially to that text. It's not just that Hezekiah longs to have his life extended because he fears death. Even the text that we read this evening tell us why the man longed 
for more years. He longed that he might praise God. Striking, isn't it, that that's the very next question he asks the prophet. When may I go back to the house of God? Why does Hezekiah long to live any more on the earth? Is he carnal? No. You see, friend, he sees that the world would see in this moment that one who worked, labored tirelessly for the reformation of God's people was hastened to the grave. What would that say to the enemies of God? He, he recognized, of course, that so few before him had left a testimony to the grace of God and had rather had given a testimony of defection and declination. He saw that dying at that time perhaps would lead those who praised the false gods whose high places Hezekiah had removed would be boldened. To say that this is the judgment of their false gods upon a man who opposed them. Everything in that text, everything about Hezekiah's prayer matches that of our psalmist. He longs to live to the praise and glory of God. There was a young preacher that Jonathan Edwards encountered, a famous preacher. And this famous preacher waxed eloquent about his desire to depart and to be with Christ. Speaking almost rapturously about death. Edwards pulled the man aside. And after explaining to him that death is a solemn thing. After explaining to him that life is a gift. He proceeded to bring to his attention these thoughts. The godly should live and long to live. To praise the Lord. Just as the psalmist does in Psalm 6. What do we live for? The thirdly and finally as we close. We have here verses 8 to 10. Assertions. Principles that the psalmist sets before us as fact. He says first of all. Verse 8. The Lord hath heard. Now at this stage we may say. The psalmist has received deliverance, and this is his reflection. God has removed from him this chastening hand, and therefore he knows certainly the Lord has heard him. My friend, I want you to notice, as you come to the ninth verse, we find that that was not the psalmist's experience at all. Note what he says. The Lord will receive my prayer. Verses 8 to 10 are not the cry of experience, they are the cry of faith. The man has still under affliction, still under the rod, as he says what he does in these final three verses. You see, friend, this teaches us, doesn't it? That faith holds to the promises as certain, even when experience seems to be contrary. This is a man who is under the rod of God. A man who is afflicted thoroughly and deeply. And a man who is humbled before God because he knows that if affliction comes to him, it is to burn away dross. But friend, as you look at this text, his faith is unshaken. He's a man who has not made this experience his Bible. 
He's a man who clings even when experience is contrary to what is held out to him in the word. What's striking about this, even as you come to the close, you'll notice here that the man begins in verse 1 by describing himself under the Lord's chastening hand, which means the Lord finds sin in him and is dealing with it accordingly. But then as you come to the very end of the psalm, you'll notice here that he separates himself from the ungodly, those who are workers of iniquity. How can he make such a distinction, seeing that he describes himself as a sinner in the first verse? You could look at this as the idea that the psalmist is really saying that he's not one who is resolved to be wicked. His resolution is holy. My friend, what I want you to notice here really and principally, the separation that is made between these two is that the one has the assurance of pardon. The Lord has heard his cries. The Lord will receive his prayer. Pardon belongs to him. And that's the point of separation. That is what really distinguishes the two. Yes, a holy resolution is there. But ultimately, beloved, it is this. One is under the wrath of God as the other is removed. When we hold the psalm together, friend, what do we find? We find a few items that, as I said before, separate this man's experience from so many today. When the man's afflicted, he's humbled. Not because of physical weakness, not because of his own creatureliness, but he knows that he's afflicted, the Lord is dealing with his internal corruption. And that draws him to the Lord, humbles him before his God. Are we such people, friend? Would we not be different people if even our latest affliction reminded us there is yet much that needs to be consumed? If we're in a fiery trial, it's because still purification is required. The psalmist reasons thus. But even as he's under the trial and longs for its removal, he is a man who longs He longs for life, not because he says some carnal attachment to the world. He longs to live. He longs to come out from underneath this rod. That his praise might be renewed. That he might worship God. He lives for the praise. He lives to make testimony to the Lord. This is why he craves longevity. And then finally, friend, he does all of these things. Sets all of these petitions before God while holding to the promises. Yes, his experience seemed so contrary. Yes, it seemed almost as though he was one to whom the heavens had become as bronze. But note, as he clings to the promises, he carries himself as one who has been pardoned. Beloved, what we learn from this text as we close is that the believer, as he continues in this fiery trial, in this present life, he is a man who has ample reason to be humble before the Lord. 
But really, the man humbled before God is a man who clings to every promise that is offered him in Christ. He is a mourning man and he is a believing man. The two, not opposed to each other, they go hand in hand. May the Lord make us such people. Amen.